Good morning, Grace Church. Thanks for joining me uh, this Sunday as we finish our walk through Acts. Um, we're going to look at Acts chapter 20 today, and um, we'll pick up kind of in the same area that we left off with Paul uh, last Sunday with John Ray. With things back to normal, Paul called the disciples together and encouraged them to keep up the good work in Ephesus. Then, saying his goodbyes, he left for Macedonia. Traveling through the country, passing from one gathering to another, he gave constant encouragement, lifting their spirits and charging them with fresh hope. Then he came to Greece and stayed for three months. Just as he was about to sail for Syria, the Jews cooked up a plot against him, so he went the other way, by land, back to Macedonia, and gave them the slip. His companions for the journey were Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus, both Thessalonians, Gaius from Derby, Timothy, and the two from Western Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. They went on ahead and waited for us in Troas. Meanwhile, we stayed in Philippi for Passover week, and then set sail. Within five days, we were again in Troas and stayed a week. We met on Sunday to worship and celebrate the Master's Supper. Paul addressed the congregation. Our plan was to leave first thing in the morning, but Paul talked on way past midnight. We were meeting in a well-lighted upper room. A young man named Eutychus was sitting in an open window. As Paul went on and on, Eutychus fell asleep and toppled out the third-story window. When they picked him up, he was dead. Paul went down, stretched himself on him, and hugged him hard. No more crying, he said. There's life in him yet. Then Paul got up and served the master's supper and went on telling stories of faith until dawn. On that note, they left, Paul going one way, the congregation another leading the boy off alive and full of life themselves. In the meantime, the rest of us had gone ahead to the ship and sailed for Asus, where we planned to pick up Paul. Paul wanted to walk there, and so had made these arrangements earlier. Things went according to plan. We met him in Asus, took him on board, and sailed to Mytilene. The next day, we put in opposite Chios, Samos a day later, and then Miletus. Paul had decided to bypass Ephesus so that he wouldn't be held up in the Asian province. He was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of Pentecost if at all possible. So when we read this story, we encounter many voices. That is, it's a multi-perspective narrative. And there are many people and places in it. Uh, most of the names you recall might, uh, if you um, understand any Greek at all, you recognize these as, as Greek people or uh, maybe Hellenized Jews. Um, these aren't um, Hebrew names that we're encountering at all, or Hebrew cities. These are um, well out in the Mediterranean. And so the Apostles' journey through Acts has been kind of long, a little bit circuitous. Um, it's marked by danger, excitement. Um, but through it all, and even up to the present time, there's this one sort of quiet player in the game. It's never really a narrator, um, but it's hardly silent and it's hardly still. So in chapter 9, we witness the saga of a young boy named Eutychus, who takes a sort of Game of Thrones-style tumble out of a high window after falling asleep on the ledge. And I want to take a break here and say that I think it's okay for kids to fall asleep in public sometimes. Growing a tiny body is really hard. Sometimes they need it. And so Eutychus does what kids do, and he falls asleep near midnight and slips from the window and is declared dead by the time they reach his body below. But Paul, who's keenly aware of that secret agent that I talked about, raises the boy from the dead and then takes everyone inside for some food. So here we have a picture of... Um, what a, a courtyard would have looked like in these times. You can see the window way up there. And um, this is a nicer house. Um, other houses may not have been this nice. And I took this from the Tesseract Center here at the university. Um, they brought this video game to life through an archeological site in Rome. So that's really neat. It gives a good perspective of, of what the boy might have fallen out of. 
And so when we look at what's happened here, we see this secret agent at work. It's not Paul, but it's the Holy Spirit. Without the presence of the Holy Spirit, this sort of secret agent, we don't experience the resurrection, right? Without the presence of the Spirit, we don't find peace in the time of trials. And the time of pandemic and isolation, police brutality, racially motivated murders, we yearn for shalom. We want all to be set right. We yearn for that resurrection, and not just in body, but in spirit as well. We, we hope for that day we can uh, get back together, the public can reopen, we can see one another and be reunited. For those who have died, we hope for that ultimate reunification, not just in spirit, but in body as well. And I'll be the first to say that the spirit will continue to work even through this without a physical church building, which is why we're still meeting online. The spirit is uh, divinely elastic. It can transform the gospel message as needed without ever compromising its very nature. And we stifle the spirit when we place these rigid boundaries on it. And we expect it must only be in a building right, or we don't think it's capable of the resurrection promise. Um, but the spirit is loose and it's creative and it's powerful and we have to have faith that it's what we need and when we need it, just as Paul did with Eutychus. But right now we kind of live in a terrifying, awesome moment between the fall, and I use that word kind of as a double entendre. If you think back about maybe what the people might have experienced between Eutychus's fall out of the window and the rush down to his body, were they hopeful? Where was that hope found? Is there hope for justice? Maybe in this life, the next? Is there hope for healing? So the hope that we experience in the book of Acts comes only through Christ and his resurrection and the spirit promised through us through that. So if this world were meant to be easy or just, we would have no need for a great physician or a great comforter. But Jesus walked this earth. If we didn't need that, Hagar would not have been the first human to cry out to God using a personal name. She said Elroy, which means God who sees me. And Elihu would not have had to encourage Job to stop dwelling on despair and instead praise the Lord. Our hope is present and active, and it is not silent. So I found myself focused on Elihu and Job's dynamic lately, uh, mostly because that struck me when I read the story of Eutychus. And I think maybe it's good for us to recall it this time. Um, if you guys aren't aware of the book of Job, um, go back and read it. It's a long one. Uh, chronologically, it may be one of the oldest books of the Bible. So in response to our question on Grace's Facebook page, what would you ask God right now? A lot of people responded with why. And Job asked the same question. Why? His friends say that he deserves all the punishment that's been brought down upon him, right? His, uh, his children are killed. His livestock is killed. He's just brought low. Job doesn't think he deserves such, but he can't explain why it's happened. So Elihu remarks that God doesn't afflict. God's merciful and fair and just and powerful, but he doesn't deal in affliction. Elihu's firm and gentle in his lamentations. As he goes on, he says, but no one says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? He says, instead of complaining and sulking, Elihu asks why these men aren't seeking God's presence in the circumstance. Why aren't they singing the songs of God's deliverance? After praying for his friends, God did restore Job. And we see something play out similarly in John. A blind man's brought before Jesus and the crowd's really eager to know whose sin to cause this disability. His parents? This guy? Where does it stop? And Jesus doesn't answer that question. He says, let the glory of God be demonstrated. And through this man's resurrection, the glory of God was demonstrated. 
Paul explains over you because his body don't be distressed. Grieve and seek the Lord in song and fellowship. That's precisely what they did. From Miletus, he said to Ephesus, for the leader of the congregation, when they arrived, he said, you know that from day one of my arrival in Asia, I was with you totally, laying my life on the line, serving the master no matter what, putting up with no end of scheming by the Jews who wanted to do me in. I didn't skimp or trim in any way. Every truth and encouragement that could have been made a difference to you, you got. I taught you out in public. I taught you in your homes urging Jews and Greeks alike a radical life change before God and an equally radical trust in our master Jesus. But there is another urgency before me now. I feel compelled to go to Jerusalem. I'm completely in the dark about what will happen when I get there. I do know that it won't be any picnic, for the Holy Spirit has let me know repeatedly and clearly that there are hard times in imprisonment ahead. But that matters little. What matters most to me is to finish what God started. The job the Master Jesus gave me of letting everyone I meet know all about this incredibly extravagant generosity of God. And so this is goodbye. You're not going to see me again, nor are you. You, whom I have gone among for so long, proclaiming the news of God's inaugurated kingdom. I've done my best for you, given you my all, held back nothing of God's will for you. Now it's up to you. Be on your toes for yourselves and your congregation of sheep. The Holy Spirit has put you in charge of these people, God's people they are, to guard and protect them, and God himself thought they were dying for. I know that as soon as I'm gone, vicious wolves are going to show up and rip into this flock, men from your very own ranks, twisting words so as to seduce disciples into following them instead of Jesus. So stay awake, keep up your guard. Remember those three years I kept at it with you, never letting up, pouring my heart out with you one after another. Now I'm turning you over to God, our marvelous God, whose gracious word can make you into what he wants you to be and give you everything you could possibly need in this community of holy friends. I've never, as you so well know, had any taste for wealth or fashion. With these bare hands, I took care of my own basic needs and those who worked with me. In everything I've done, I've demonstrated to you how necessary it is to work on behalf of the weak and not exploit them. You'll not likely go wrong here if you keep remembering that our master said, you're far happier giving than getting. Then Paul went down on his knees, all of them kneeling with him and prayed, and then a river of tears, much clinging to Paul, not wanting to let him go. They knew they would never see him again. He told them quite plainly, and the pain cut deep. Then, bravely, they walked him down to the ship. So as Paul traveled through the Mediterranean world of Acts, encouraging his disciples and other believers, we must encourage one another in the spirit. We forget our mission when we isolate, like Job, and we must be reminded time and again of the promises of the spirit. But since we must isolate right now for the good of those around us and for ourselves, we really need this fellowship, this holy friendship, as Paul called it, with people like Elihu. We need people who offer reminders of that hope. Job's other friends did not offer orthodoxy. They didn't have correct thinking about God, and therefore they didn't offer life. They were parasites. They sucked the life out of an already deflated man. And from the same root word in the Greek, we also get the opposite of parasite, a paraclete. A paraclete is a person who encourages, who brings life as an advocate of the Holy Spirit. So the onus is on us to choose which of the two we're going to be in this time. Are we going to speak life, or will we take it? I'm going to be very clear here that Paul spoke life even and up to the point of causing a commotion and being martyred. He said, the Holy Spirit warns me in town after town that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. 
Now, taking life is easy. It requires blame, projection, fear, sometimes nothing more than silence or inaction. But being silent in the face of evil is not life-giving. Bringing the encouragement of the Holy Spirit is difficult work, and it is a lifelong journey, and we must rely on one another to finish the ministry. We don't get to stop at just speaking out against violence, hunger, viruses. We have to practice it, too. Orthodoxy requires orthopraxy, and we have to be transformative, not performative. So how do we test and know if what we say and what is said to us in return is of the Spirit? We look to Paul's message in the second half of this chapter. He says that he didn't desire remuneration, but brought this message to build up believers, testifying through the repentance of God and faith in Lord Jesus. It's a direct quote. Testifying through the repentance of God and faith in the Lord Jesus. So be sure every message that we deliver and receive will be somewhat tainted, right? Flavored with little bits of ourselves and other humans. It'll kind of look something maybe like a ground beef ratio, you know, 60, 40, 70, 30. But if the gospel of truth, the repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is spoken, it will be apparent no matter what that ratio is, right? Um, I know I mentioned the strife and the oppression that we feel daily, but when the spirit speaks, it brings good news, right? It brings that power of hope and restoration for the oppressed and the afflicted. And if what we say in here is not good news for them, it is not gospel truth. Um, in a very famous video called Ee Tao, the Mok people of Papua New Guinea call Ee Tao the gospel, right? In their language, that means it is true. So I know that it's not enough to know these truths. We have to live them, right? Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. Famous theologian James Cohn said that while we argue whether a whale swallowed Jonah or not, people are killed by inhumane societies. So we must consider that the narrative of the Bible was written by and for an oppressed and afflicted people. God's narrative of restoration, hope, and justice should never be sterilized or exclusive. Instead, it should unite us in a common goal and in a common spirit. We've talked about this before with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his idea of community. Beyond that, though, our bodies and our souls require upkeep. So there's a very physical, tangible aspect to this. Paul placed the emphasis on the everyday goal of unifying in the spirit, eating together, working together, communing, caring. These are all things that Paul and the other disciples are doing day in and day out in the book of Acts that function to both nurture the soul and the body. We can't ignore the soul to save the body, and nor can we ignore the body to save the soul. And I don't use the word save here in salvific terms. Salvation alone belongs to God. I mean here just mere preservation. Our goal then is to nurture and be nurtured. And when we can no longer do that, when we can't even put one foot in front of the other, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with these inaudible palms. There was a really interesting psych experiment a few years back. Some researchers put two chickens in a room together. And one chicken was agitated until it became anxious. And that upset chicken looked to the other chicken that was looking for a familiar face for help. The anxious chicken needed to know what was happening in the chicken verse. If the second chicken was also agitated and riled up like the first chicken, the first chicken's anxiety increased and really started freaking out, like things are really, really wrong in the chicken universe. If the second chicken remained calm and steady, the anxious chicken calmed down too. And we kind of feed off each other like those chickens. I don't always remain calm. I'll be the first to admit that I get riled up and agitated by the world really easily. And I need other chickens to let me know what's going on. Johnny Cash called himself a dove with claws. I suppose you could maybe uh, swap that in your brain. 
that gives you a better mental image. And usually when I get anxious, it means texting my mom. She screens out a Bible verse so fast it breaks a sound barrier, I swear. She has this real gift for encouragement, but I don't. And just because I don't particularly share her gift doesn't mean I get out of trying. I must still warn people of the wolves that wait. In the learning guide this week, uh, the teaching team has laid out some really practical steps for the weeks ahead. Extra readings, extra songs to sing. Um, there's a really interesting story about testimony there from a guy named Penn Gillette. Um, and I want us to read the city guide. I challenge us to read it. And I want us to be brave in our common goal for the spirit, no matter how awkward and scary it gets. You guys, we have to live out what we preach, just like Paul did. Walked right into it. It doesn't matter what wolves are waiting. You know, it doesn't matter what's beyond the social awkwardness. It's it's important. The work cannot wait. Um, I included a really funny slide here just because I was told if I made references, I should uh, I should uh, note them. So I figured there weren't enough fantasy references, and there there are citations. <laughs> um, but here now, John's gonna gonna come in, and we'll transition to communion. And communion is a time when we collectively remember the resurrection and the restoration that awaited Christ and awaits us still. So even as we behold the wolves looming and the body and the blood, that they anchor us to Christ, right? We see the wolves and we sing the songs of God's deliverance anyway. Y'all, thanks for coming with us today on this journey through Acts. Let us remember to continue to seek God's presence, to encourage one another, and to sing songs of deliverance even when the wolves are near. I love the image Amy gave there that we are in this time of the fall and the, the meaning that that could have. I responded pretty emotionally when she thought or when she said, what are we going to find as we run down the stairs? Um, what are we going to find? Are we going to find death? Are we going to find crippling um, consequences? I don't think any of the people who ran down the stairs at night expected, anticipated resurrection right there. Um, what are we going to find, y'all? What are we going to find in the world where we have to say the names George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery over and over again so we won't forget? What are we going to find? I don't know about the rest of you, but I've really struggled to know how to respond accurately and adequately to what we're seeing play out during this time. And it's no one thing. Um, it's a lot of things. How do we respond? And it starts with looking to Jesus. How did Jesus respond? Jesus responded to a broken world by giving himself. It wasn't to 
hold on to his privilege of sitting in heaven and watching passively, passing judgment. Uh, Jesus entered into everything, all of it. John 3.16, while we can all recite that from heart, is followed by John 3.17. For God did not send his world his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. There's a lot of condemning voices out there right now. Now, there are things that need to be condemned, systems of oppression, systems of injustice. But we need to be careful when we are condemning people in this. What is our response to be? It is to look and to listen. It is to mourn and lament. This is what we have to do. Especially those of us like me who have enjoyed untold privilege and position. I've started a hundred media post I'm trying to write right now. And mostly what I feel from the spirit is just to shut up and listen, to watch the unwatchable, to listen to voices that are in agony and pain and to bear witness to that pain, bear witness to the pain of others not try to justify it, not try to minimize it, not try to idolize it, but to listen to it, to bear witness to it, to quit making excuses, quit trying to make excuses for it and not trying to make excuses for our own pain. Because as we open ourselves to the pain of others, inevitably, our own pain will resurface. And if we haven't dealt with that, y'all, if we haven't dealt with the pain in our own lives, we won't be able to bear witness to the pain in others. So look, listen, mourn, and lament. Know that as a church, we're processing the best way to respond to these things immediately as a community of Jesus followers, as well as continue to try and address the underlying systemic issues of what the church is supposed to be. The body of believers of a God on mission who has a church, that's us. And so we are looking and listening, mourning and repenting. And today is Pentecost Sunday. Normally we try to make this a celebratory day, which it should be. That doesn't seem appropriate today. Not now. But that doesn't mean we need the gift of the Holy Spirit less. Grace Church, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as you would water if you were dying for thirst in the desert. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as you would if it was a miracle cure and you were 100% terminal with cancer. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit 
as you would a rescue ship if you had been adrift in an endless ocean with no hope of land. And then let God, the Holy Spirit, enable you to look and to listen, to mourn and lament, and not to turn away. And we start that as we do every week, but especially this week, by looking at the broken body of Jesus. Look, he says. I can imagine the disciples looking at him, but also looking at the bread in his hand. And he said, it is broken for you. It's going to hang on a cross. It's going to be mocked, spit upon, crucified, murdered. He says, look at the cup. His blood, which is going to be poured out. Don't look away. Because for us, it's for you. It's for me. And in his pain, we can see our own pain. And we can see the pain of generations of oppressed people and we can do what needs to be done bear witness to it give ourselves for the healing work for justice anticipate resurrection so take and eat and drink bearing witness and in participation with a broken and crucified Savior. So during this time, we also share offerings. We give because all of us here have something to give. We receive because none of us here is without a need. We're going to need to give a lot. We're going to need to give more. The situation right now calls for sacrifice of all things, of all kinds of things. And that is worship, right and appropriate. It is also during this last part where you commit to act on what you've heard today from Amy, from the Holy Spirit, from Bailey's song. Don't let this moment pass. Find what you need to respond. Write it down. Tell someone. And then do it. And reach out for help if you need help doing it. But respond at this time. And thank you for being here this morning. Grace and peace, everyone.